0: All right, listen, open your sermon outline on your Three Cross app or pull it out because you grabbed one on your way in and let's find our way to Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Matthew 21, 33 through 46. We're looking at problem tenants today. Any landlords here today? Anybody have tenants on their property today? Well, maybe this is going to connect with you. If you've ever had rental property, you know that tenants can sometimes be a problem. I had a friend in high school whose parents owned a small apartment complex. And every now and then, my friend would come to me and say, Larry, uh, my parents are, uh, there's a, there's a, they have problem tenants, and uh, we've got to go. They've moved out. They've evicted these tenants, and we have to go clean up the apartment. And so I'd, I'll never forget the first time. Okay, I'll do that. I mean, what, how messy could it be? And I'm not kidding, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. There was trash and junk. People had just walked out of this place. Obviously, they'd stopped paying rent for months. They trashed the place. There was holes in the sheetrock. There was, there was just garbage and junk, and it smelled. And, it was, and, and we had the wonderful job of cleaning up after these problem tenants. And the thing that was even more astounding to me that when I got to college and I visited my friends in their dorm rooms, it looked pretty much the same, as those. Uh, Maybe we're cultivating problem tenants in dorm rooms across this country. I don't know. A few years ago, about four guys moved into the home that borders our backyard. It's around the block, but their backyard shares our backyard, separated by a fence. And our yard is very small, so is theirs. And so they moved in, I think it was late spring and... uh, four guys, and every single night there was at least 10 or 12 people over there, music, you know, just kind of loud, language that, you know, not saying praise Jesus and all these kinds of words. Uh, It was was offensive. It was hard. And I remember talking to some of my police officer friends. How can I, you know, what do I do? You know, should I just call the police? Well, they said, you know, if you call, I'm sure they're going to figure out it's you. It would be better if you just went and talked to them, you know. And so because it was over the fence, it, I didn't want to, like, scream over the fence. You know, hey, would you guys shut up? You know, I didn't want to do that. I've got three daughters growing up at the time. You know, I didn't want to have a bad relationship. And it was just terrible. It was like six months of misery living in our house every night, closing the doors. I went over. I remember one night I just got fed up. I, went, I had to drive around the block, 2 in the morning, and, and all the way around. I'm saying, Lord, I, you know, how can I just... Be a witness to these guys, you know, when I want to throw them in jail. Like, what am I going to do, you know? So, I mean, it was it was a crazy, I can't even tell you all the stories. I remember knocking at the door, you know, and this guy comes, kind of blurry-eyed. I'm saying, hey, you know, can I talk to the person who's responsible, whoever's renting this home? And the guy, you know, they couldn't even figure out who it was, you know, that kind of thing. I'm standing in this house, 2 in the morning, saying, guys, you know, can you please? You know, it just, it was hard. And maybe you've had... <laughs> And by the way, a few months after that, something happened, and they moved. It was so beautiful. It was... It's, it's hard. Some of us live around problem tenants. Some of us may be problem tenants. Think about that. Well, Jesus uses a story about problem tenants to illustrate the unbelief of the religious leaders. Now... Read this with me, and let's see what Jesus had to say in a parable on judgment, for unbelief. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenant seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes." Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet." Okay, well, listen it's not difficult to see that in this parable, each character represents someone. the landowner obviously represents God. The vineyard represents israel. I'll show you that in a moment. The renters or tenants represent israel leaders, and the servants and the, are the and the prophet are the prophets the servants are the prophets that God has sent to bring his message, and then finally, the son is obviously. Jesus himself. Now, the amazing thing about this story, if you look at verse 40, 45, that these guys knew that this story was about them. Jesus tells this incredibly uh, convicting judgment story, and as they're hearing it, they know that he's talking about them. Let's look closely at this parable, and I want to show you two themes that come out of this parable. And I, there's a lot to cover here, uh, but you'll see it's going to go pretty quick. What I want you to see is that this first theme in the first part of the parable is all about the incomparability of God and our response to Him. There are three things about God that are just absolutely Uh, unable to compare with anything else in the universe and there's something about us there too that is incomparable we're going to see that those first in this first movement, this first theme, the incomparability of God and our response to him. And then we're going to move into the second movement of the sermon, and we're going to see, this is going to get a little more technical, a little more theological, but we're going to see the incomprehensibility of God's plan in saving people, okay? So this is, we're going to look at the incomparableness of God and the incomprehensibleness of God in two different ways views, okay? So this first part, verses 33 through 39, I want to show you three things about God that are incomparable and one thing about us that's, not, that's uncomparable too. And the first you're going to see there in verse 33, don't you see that there is no provision greater than God's provision for his people? That's what this parable is about. Jesus starts with how God has been so faithful throughout Israel's history to provide for them in every place and every need. Now, as Jesus told this parable, those that knew the Scripture would have known immediately that Jesus was talking about the nation of Israel and God's provision for Israel. If you have your Bibles and go there quickly, go back to the book of Isaiah, please. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, it's the song of the vineyard, Isaiah preaching, uh, prophesying the word of God. And listen to what God says through Isaiah. I will sing, verse 1, chapter 5 of Isaiah, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good, good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland because neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Look at verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. When Jesus told this parable, any religious leader of Jesus' day would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about Israel being the vineyard of God, and even though God had so graciously provided, he had taken such care of his vineyard, the people of God had turned away. What more could God have done? It feels maybe a little bit like when parents have done everything they could to raise their kids, they've put their kids in a good home, they've provided for them, they've got food for them, they've put clothes on their back, they've done everything they possibly could and one day the kid says, I hate you, I want you out of my life, I don't want anything to do with you and they leave and go their own way. How does it feel for a parent to experience that kind of loss, that sort of severing? And this is what Jesus is saying about the children of Israel, God's people God's covenanted people were basically throwing it right back at God he'd been so provisioned he had given so much to them what more could he have done and, and they left him behind God is our great provider this is one of Jehovah's names right Jehovah Jireh the one who provides on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided You know, when I was a teenager, I remember worrying about how I would be taken care of in my life. I I remember, would I make enough money to survive? I remember when I first moved out and and experienced that amazing reality of, wait a minute, opening the cupboards and where's all the food? (laughs) I mean, before it just sort of appeared magically. Open the refrigerator and there is food. Go to the pantry, open it up and there is food. It was all magical. Now it wasn't there. What was I going to do? I remember wondering, could I actually make a living? Could I make enough to actually live and have a family? And I look back in my life and I see over and over how God has been so gracious and so have you. You can look back in your life and see that God has been so gracious in providing for us. There is no comparison to the way God provides for his people. And this is what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders. He's saying, are you kidding me? You don't see how God has provided? Here's another thing Jesus shows them. Verses 34 through 36, That there's, here's something else incomparable with God. There is no patience greater than God's patience toward those who have refused his message. God is so patient in the story. The landowner keeps sending his servants even though they're all wiped out along the way. This clearly shows how patient God is. This is a picture of the way God sent his messengers to his people, prophets to warn and call his people back to repentance. And yet they continue to wipe them out. God's prophets experienced unbelievable suffering at times. You know, a summary statement in the Old Testament just before Israel's history goes into exile, the writer of 2nd Chronicles, I'll put this on the screen just so you can read this. You know, you should go in your Bibles there. You should see it there. You can underline this later. But look at Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. This is a summary statement of the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. That's Jerusalem. But they mocked God's messengers, despised His words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. You know it's true, God is so patient, there's no one as patient as God, but God's patience does come to an end, and God moves in in judgment. You think about this in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews in chapter seven, excuse me, chapter eleven, verses thirty five and following. Uh, Speaking about this, others were tortured and refused to be released. Some uh, faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That's Hebrews eleven thirty-five 35 through 38. The New Testament, the Old Testament talks about over and over how God is so patient. We continue to spurn his love. We reject him. We turn from him. And he's so patient. Second Peter chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3 verse 9 the Lord is not slow. Let's read this one together. Can, can we do that? Here we go. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our God is so patient. He's patient. You know, have you ever had somebody come to you and say, well, if, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why does not God just jump in and do something about that? He's patient. God is so patient, he is waiting for people to turn. He's waiting. He's still waiting. He's waiting on some of you today. He's waiting on some of you to turn from your hard-heartedness against him and all of your life where he's shown you his provision and given you opportunity, you've turned away. And I don't know who's listening, I don't know who's here today, but there's there's. All of us need to realize how patient. There's no comparison to the patience of God to us. You know, I am so impatient. You know, I've been thinking about this message all week and I I got up yesterday morning and and helped a friend move and I reviewed my notes and then I kind of went out into my day and then I I realized oh, yesterday is the first day to get flu shots at Kaiser. Okay, so I'm going to get my flu shot because last year I got my flu shot and like in December I got the worst flu of my life. (laughs) So I said, I'm going to try it again. I'm going to try it again. So I go home and I get online because I'm thinking maybe they close. I, I thought I read somewhere where it was only until 1 o'clock. So I'm on the Kaiser website and it's, I'm clicking on the find a location for flu shots near you. I'm clicking that button and nothing's happening. I'm just like, kick, 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 kick. <laughs> why isn't this thing working? The, I, I'm just frustrated. Carla's looking at me like, come on. All right, I'm just going to chance it. I'm going. It's like 20 minutes to 1. I get out. I get into my car. Get on 580. It's clear on Saturdays. Normally, it's not on <laughs> yesterday. Some traffic accident up ahead. Oh, come on. Who blew it this time, you know? <laughs> I finally get to Kaiser. I'm thinking, okay, I make it. It's like 10 to 1. I've made it if they're closing at 1. I walk in the door, and there's like 300 people. Grab the little clipboard. I'm standing in the back. Well, maybe they'll get me in. Finally, someone comes, like three people later, and says, "We're cutting the line off here because we're closing at one." I go, "Thank you. I'm glad I'm here." And then I get out. I get my shot. I get back in my car, and I'm driving out. And suddenly, there's like there's this guy. I'm trying to get over, and this this big van just kind of gets over like this. And just like I can't get around. I'm like, and I'm like, ah! And all of a sudden, it hits me. I've been studying the patience of God. And I'm going like six times in the last 40 minutes, I have just been lit up because I'm not getting somewhere fast enough. Okay. I know that nobody here can relate to that. But I want you to remember this morning that nothing compares with God's provision nor nothing compares to His patience toward us. Aren't you glad? I mean, if God was like me, Boom! I would just be gone. I've had it with Larry. I mean, come on. I've provided for you. What? Ah. But God's not like that. God is so patient. I'll tell you what else God is incomparable to. He's incomparable with the act of grace. There's no act of grace greater than God's grace in sending His Son, Jesus. So with all the messengers, think about this, beaten, maimed, and dead at the hands of rebels... God does what is unbelievable. In one more magnanimous move of care for his ruthless tenants, the landowner decides he will send his son. Anyone listening to this story would have said, no way. Come on, look at the newspaper. Look at what happened to everybody that went before. Why would you send your son? And this is the point of the parable. It's to rock the people that were listening. This is the extent of God's grace. That even when he's given and been turned away, even when he's patient and people haven't turned and they've maimed, killed, and destroyed his prophets, he sends the most precious messenger of all. He sends his son. This is the amazing truth of what God does for us. There is no grace more gracious than God sending his son. This shows us the depth of God's love and grace for lost sinners. This is why when Paul wrote the Ephesians, he said in chapter 318, he says that my prayer for them is that they might know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Anybody here need a little bit more understanding of how long and high and wide and deep is the love of Christ? This is the grace of God. There's no grace greater, no, nothing more beautiful than how God graciously provides by sending his son. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. This story illustrates the infinite depth of God's love for rebel sinners when extending grace, the ultimate grace of sending his son, Jesus. Praise God. God's provision, God's patience, and God's grace are incomparably superior to all other kinds of provision, patience, and grace, hands down. But watch this, there's something about something incomparable about us too. Verses 38 and 39, there is no sin greater than humanity's sin of rejecting Jesus. I mean, there's nothing to compare with that. If grace was at its best when God sent his son, then sin was at its worst when humanity rejected him. This is the ultimate sin. In one place in the Gospel of John, John 6, 27, let's put this on the screen. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You see, to not believe in Jesus is really the ultimate sin. And we have a tendency to to view sin as the bad things we do. We could make our list. If I said right now, what are the worst sins you could commit? And we we could write them down. And we've got a a clear picture in our mind of the absolute worst sin we could commit. But I just want to throw that whole list, whatever it is that you've got, whatever it is, just throw that whole list out because there's nothing that compares to the sin of rejecting the, the gift of Jesus Christ. Because, watch this, that sin list that we could create, all of those sins are forgivable. All of those sins were paid for when Jesus died on the cross, There's only one sin that can't be forgiven, and that's when a person continues to refuse and reject the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. That's the one sin that cannot be forgiven. If you die, if you leave this world without ever having repented of your self-styled rebellion against God, rejecting His authority, rejecting His gift in your life, you will spend eternity in hell. You will miss the place that God could provide for you in Jesus Christ. And I don't know who's listening today. Some of you may be hedging bets that, you know, I'm not as bad as the next guy. I'm I'm sure I can stand before God and I'm going to tell him some of the good things I've done in my life. Listen, the thing that you cannot be forgiven of when you leave this world is having rejected Jesus. And you must come to the place of believing on him to be saved. And this is why we look to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Watch this. Let us then go to the the one outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Notice it says there, Of the tenant that was killed, that they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is a picture of Jesus. This is what we did. This is what you and I did to Jesus when we rejected Christ. And the beautiful thing is, right now, today, today today's the day of salvation, the door stands open for anyone who would repent of the sin of refusing Christ and by faith trust in him and follow him with your life, the door is wide open for salvation. Have you come through the door? And if not, today's the day. Today you can come through the door. You can experience the beautiful provision of God, the patience of God, the grace of God in ways that you never dreamed possible but you can leave this place and refuse him in your life and spend eternity apart from him, separated from him in a place where they would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know we don't like talking about hell these days. Maybe we should talk about it a little bit more. I mean, do you think, you think you, you, do you want your loved ones, do you want people in your life that you care for and love to spend an eternity apart from Christ because they thought that by doing bad things they would miss heaven when ultimately it was simply because they refused to let Jesus be Lord of their lives? Have you told anyone that lately? Have you ever shared the story of how Christ has saved you, brought you into life? All right, these are the incomparables. God's provision, God's patience, God's grace, and our response of sin by refusing Christ. Those are incomparable to everything else. Let me show you now as we turn the corner to this, nu- this next theme of that which is incomprehensible about God's plan And I show these to you in in statements of irony, okay? And really quickly, number one, verses 40 and 41, it's ironic that while our depravity is hard to deny, it's impossible to avoid. See that in verse 40 and 41? Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Jesus is asking the people he's speaking to, look at what they say. He will bring these wretches to a wretched end, they replied. Wow. Wow. I mean, do they realize what they're saying? They're bringing judgment on themselves. They're pronouncing their own condemnation. They know what the landowner of the story is going to do. There's really no surprises. This is what's undeniable. Listen, we seem powerless to avoid what's coming, but we can't deny what's coming. You know, if you're honest with yourself, if you're... You remember the days of following the way that you wanted to go? You knew that there was going to come a day where payday happens, where judgment happens. And this is the period what I call in people's lives where they feel stuck. Uh, They feel stuck because this is how depravity works. We know we can't deny our depravity, but we also can't avoid our depravity. And we're stuck. But that is until the grace of God sets us free. This is what's so beautiful about the gospel. While we stand condemned, God provides a way of escape. Jesus, our Savior, has come to set us free. God made him, 2 Corinthians 5.21, let's say this out loud together. Ready, here we go. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's so ironic that while It's impossible to deny our depravity. It's also impossible to avoid it. And what's in view here is humanity's condemnation. We we are irreversibly set on a course of condemnation until that moment where Jesus shows up and gives us the grace to believe. There's another irony here, and that is that it's ironic that Christ's humiliation was a means of his glorification, that's what it says in, verses, in verse 42. Uh, verse 42. Uh, excuse me, yeah, look at verse 42a. Jesus said to them, "Have you never read in the scriptures, "The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone." What's in view here, what's in view here is Christ's exaltation." I mean, he's quoting from Psalm 118:22 that says that the stone re- that the builders rejected became the capstone. In building in ancient days, and we have a similar to this, we have a, you know, a foundation stone, uh, or we call it the cornerstone. The idea is, is that there is a stone in the building in ancient days that sort of was the, the key to holding the foundation together. And the capstone sort of held the other part of the structure together. Some of your translations use capstone, some use cornerstone. This, the principle is simple. The principle is that there's a building that is going to be erected, and there has to be a foundation. And as the builders go through looking for that stone that's going to be the perfect stone, they cast aside the ones that they don't think are the ones that they should use. And Jesus is saying, haven't you ever read that this is about me? That the the stone that the builders rejected, and the builders were the religious leaders, actually has become the cornerstone, the capstone And to those of us who are believers in Christ, we know that this is the beautiful picture of the stone uh, that is precious to us, the stone that the builders rejected, but also a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 talks about this, that we come to him as to a living stone. He He is the rock to which we place our faith and trust in. And this is ironic that while Jesus is describing the fact uh, of his humiliation, it's actually the means of his glorification, his exaltation. And that's why the world someday is going to see that they were completely wrong on who Jesus was. They've rejected him, they've thrown him aside, and yet, by God's grace, and listen, it's not because we're smarter; we figured it out, it's by God's grace he's opened our eyes to see who Jesus is. I've talked to some people this week who vehemently deny the person of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to, sit, to save the world from its sin. And they just simply can't see it. And, you know, the, the argument stops and simply love goes on a person like that because, because you recognize that you can't talk somebody out of their position. Only the grace of God can open their eyes to see where they really are. And once their eyes are open, then there's no going back. And so I'm praying for some individuals that I met with this week that need to have their eyes opened. I can't open their eyes. Only Jesus can open their eyes. A third irony here is that Israel's rejection of Christ was part of God's plan. Israel's rejection of Christ was actually part of God's plan. Uh, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is what Jesus is saying. Like, do you realize that what has happened here is, is this is God's way of, of of bringing the gospel to the other people in the world that need Christ, this is all a part of God's plan. I mean, what's in view here is God's participation, the way God works in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of problems. In fact, in the book of Acts, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of giving you these verses, and I know our time is kind of short here. We need to wrap this up. But in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter stands up and he preaches this amazing sermon and he says, he, list, he said, listen, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, what's amazing about this is it sounds like Peter's saying, you guys put Jesus on the cross, but then in the same sentence he says, and this was according to God's plan. So whatever you're going through today, no matter how weird, strong, crazy, hard, whatever it is, you can also rely on the fact that in the way that God worked in the life of his son Jesus, that through Israel's rejection of Christ was a part of God's plan, God participates in all things. Romans 8 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, those are called according to his plan. God has a plan. He's working out his plan in our lives. We see humanity's condemnation here. We see Christ's exaltation. We see God's participation. It's also ironic that Israel's fall means the rising of God's purposes among the Gentiles. Verse 30, uh, 43. He says, There I will. I I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. The message goes from Israel to the Gentiles. And all Gentiles said? Amen. Amen. Yes. Now, if you're a Jewish person here today, you can revel in the fact that God has made his life, the life of his son Jesus, known to you as well. If you're a follower, if you're a Messianic Jew, praise God. I've met people there on fire. Messianic Jews are the most exciting people to talk to in the world they've come to see but god has sort of allowed a period where the jewish people israel sort of blind now to who jesus is so that the fullness of the gentiles will come in and that's you and me and if that didn't happen we wouldn't be saved today praise god but that's ironic isn't it what's in view there is the gospel's permeation the gospel's mission that the gospel was intended to go to all the kingdoms of the world A few weeks ago, we heard Pastor Mark eloquently preach on the gospel to the world and how tens and even hundreds of thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ every single day in Africa and Asia and and in Islamic areas around the world. Jesus is making himself known, and the gospel is going out. And the last irony is this, verse 44. It's ironic that people who taste of the pains of refusing Christ in this life, watch this, Don't see the catastrophe of what awaits them in the next. Verse 44, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on he on whom it falls will be crushed. You're going to have problems all through your life if you reject Christ, but you don't have any idea the problem that awaits you when you stand before the judgment of Christ. And that's what Jesus says right here. He says, you know, you're going to chafe and kick and squirm and, oh, and you're not going to like this world and you're going to shake your fist at God. You have no idea what's going to happen when you stand before God in judgment. I know that's not a popular message today, but that's the word of God. And I'd rather, I'd rather wake some people up because I love them and they know I love them and I put my arms around them when I tell them this, that unless they repent, they will spend an eternity apart from Christ apart from God and his word. Well, when Jesus when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' stories, they knew he was talking about them. Do you know he's talking about you if you've refused Christ this morning? And if you do, today is the day that you can give your life to Christ and you can trust in him and be saved. Let's pray.